You see a woman lost in the woods, making her way through the dark, her white dress stained with something that looks like blood. Surely something is chasing after her. The music rises. She screams, but then... Hang on. Let's rewind. Literally. This is a horror movie, but it's not the horror movie that you're about to watch. Someone else is watching this woman, making notes in a little notebook. The person with the notebook is Enid Baines, and she's a film censor in 1980s Great Britain. No, the decapitation is ridiculous. It's the, uh, it's the eye gouging. It's too... It's too realistic. Plus, I was trying to see who dragged her away. Ina takes her job really seriously. Maybe even a little bit too seriously. Bit of a stickler for detail, you could say. Which is all well and good until the cracks start to show underneath the tightly wound, polished exterior. This is the first scene of Prana Bailey Bond's debut film, Censor. A horror film so layered with beauty, gore and mystery that it deserves its very own podcast. Welcome to Censor This, a miniseries dedicated to dissecting some of the many layers of the film. My name is Anna Bogutska, I'm the co-founder of the horror film collective The Final Girls, and throughout the next four episodes, I'll be talking to film critics, cinephiles, horror experts, as well as some of the people who made the film to try and unpick why Censor has stuck with me, and all of us, really, just so very much. Come on, summon my shadow, spin. <clears throat> Do it. One, two, three. You do not need to have seen this film to be able to listen to this podcast. In fact, I hope that some people who haven't seen Censor yet might listen to this show and be encouraged to seek the film out. But please do be warned, there will be mild spoilers ahead. If there's any discussion about the ending though, we will mention it explicitly in conversation, so you will be duly warned. In this first episode, we're going to dive into the horror of Censor, the visceral and the psychological with the chief film critic of The Independent, Clarice Lockery. I was always a bit of a macabre child. <laughs> I used to read a lot of books about ghosts and, and witches, and I, I think it, it's that sort of like interest in the unexplainable that's always stayed with me. So in terms of the the kind of horror I like it's I think it's anything that makes me question reality and existence and, and makes puts a little question mark at the end of the sentences of my reality uh I really enjoy any kind of horror film that's like that and I think censor is very much <laughs> that sort of film and I think that's why I've been thinking about it so much I mean it bodes well for this conversation because in this episode we're going to be discussing the horror of censor like what makes it work and as a horror film and where that sense of of the unexplained and the terrifying stems from the film so can you talk a little bit about your expectations of the film and what was 
that first impression when you first saw it? Well, the most I'd heard about it was from you because you'd seen it. (laughs) (laughs) And you were recommending it to me. And I think, you know, knowing that we know each other's taste quite well, I trusted that I was going to like it because... You know, otherwise, why would you recommend it to me? So I I went in with quite high expectations because of that, but they were fulfilled. So good job. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you first make of Sensor when you saw it with those expectations sky high? Yeah, I think as I kind of mentioned the the idea that it's it's not left my brain, it's there was such a, a pleasurable feeling of discomfort after the credits rolled because... It's one of those great horror films that ends with with a question mark, with a very big question mark. <laughs> and and I think like when films do that very well, that sort of that lingering feeling of the of not just the unexplained but the openness of you know that something happens after the credits, but but the filmmaker doesn't give you that. It's your own brain has to fill in that gap. It always affects me in in such a sort of like gut, uh, a very emotional way as opposed to an intellectual way. Even mm-hmm. so, I just remember, you know, I, I watched it one evening and <laughs> credits rolled, <laughs> and I walked away from the movie and just sort of sat with it quietly for the rest of the evening because I was trying to sort of process things that I was feeling but maybe hadn't quite intellectually processed yet and that's that's just always a very nice experience and I think for me a sign of just really good good filmmaking because Mm -hmm. it's understanding how we watch and interact with films. It feels like you're describing kind of the that there's something that I also noticed in the in the film which is that there's this very distinct two layers of feeling the horror and seeing it which sensor seems to have a bit of both you know there's the external horrors that it deals with and presents in 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 some ways and then there's the internal horror which i think is very much uh, condensed in the character of enid the central character of enid baines so how do you think it balances these two approaches so it has you know it's steeped in horror history and has a lot of references and and takes a lot from what we expect from a horror film, particularly one set in the eighties, and also has a, a a good chunk of it that's psychological horror that's happening inside the head of a character. I what I was really struck by watching it for the first time was the way that um Prano Bailey Bond she a lot of the transitions between scenes and often the transitions are going from something we can vaguely grasp as material reality into some it's Enid's head maybe or her past is it a memory or is it imagination we're not quite sure but we're traveling to some other plane and the way that she does that is so often by having the camera zoom into a tv set and zoom into the screen and so for me a lot of those two layers of horror that you're talking about it's it, it comes down to that overarching theme about the the moral panic the moral panic of the video nasties about our brain's ability to to separate fact and fiction Mm. and i think this film explores that on so many different levels because yes it is about you know the the sort of very political side of the video nasty moral panic but 
you're also dealing with Enid's repressed memories. And what is that? What is she remembering? Is it the truth or is it some gap that she's filling in with an imagined horror? And and then also like her relationship with the films that she's watching as a censor of, of what she's absorbing from them. And, you know, I think, you know, for me as a critic, somebody who, you know, I've kind of do a version of her job where I just sit and I watch films all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's really fascinating to watch a film that is about somebody's relationship with film and and when that film becomes so all-consuming that it bleeds into your life. Mm. And I have that all the time <laughs> because I feel like I have... One of the reasons I like doing this job is I have such a strong emotional relationship to the films that I'm watching. And and so yeah, I think to go back to those those two levels of horror, I think mm. the throughout sensor, it's kind of our audience as the audience is our brain trying to figure out well what's what? What is mm. <laughs> what is the film and what is the memory and and is Enid's problem that she can't separate the two quite clearly enough? Mm. There's several things there. So let's talk first about like her relationship with the films that she's censoring that she's passing judgment on not dissimilar to a critic but very different let's just yes. make that super clear <laughs> very different particularly in that part in that era so how would you describe like this sense of um i guess moral responsibility that she holds and she's so detail-oriented and so specific in how she administers her job and her judgment and that's the first scene of the film you know we see her rewind on a horror film and we see her go back and decide this is okay this is not okay this is uh, potentially damaging harmful to audiences this is fine and there's this whole conversation about you know what is okay to leave in a film what is okay to show in a film how do you think like she relates to the images that she's seeing in the film I think for her character, there is this very strong level of disconnect and complete disassociation. Because I, I was so struck by the scene where it's her and, and a colleague, a female colleague, are watching a film that has, you know, of, of quite graphic sexual assault in it. Mm. And her colleague is very clearly upset by it. And, and she doesn't react. And mm -hmm. the colleague sort of doesn't quite understand that and it's because sort of her there there I think there is something where she just sort of like leaves her body while she's watching this film because she's so focused on the job at hand mm -hmm. that it's not really her in the room anymore it's it's the censor it's like the identity of her as the censor and because she feels like there's such a moral imperative to do this job because she is protecting people and she keeps telling that to herself and to people like I am protecting people this is why I do what I do I mean what is it with these directors male inadequacy revenge catharsis <laughs> didn't that get to you some of those scenes were so excessive just focus on getting it right don't really think about anything else And I think to take a step back from that, 
it's really interesting when we're talking about a character that has suffered some sort of trauma mm-hmm. that she she can't fully remember it's like well that's protection as well mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so sensor there is there is this this great way that explores how our brains protect ourselves mm-hmm. and it made me think about you know women's relationship with horror because I know that as as a horror fan I do <laughs> I watch really horrific stuff and and like there is a point where where I think your brain just steps in to kind of protect yourself and you go well it's fiction it's fiction and you kind of disassociate a little <laughs> mm-hmm. and and it's a really complicated relationship because you know for so long they're having assumptions that women couldn't couldn't possibly like horror because you know why would they just be so disgusted and terrified by the violence and it's like well no because that's also a way of processing things Mm -hmm. and so I don't know horror to me it's just so fascinating because there's so many layers to it and there's so many complexities and contradictions and I just yeah I, I like how this film like each little part of the narrative has so many parts to it (laughs) it has so many applications both for Ina's character like her relationship with her trauma but also as an audience like our wider relationship with horror absolutely I think it it really much visualizes and actually puts into the language of horror films that tension that exists on on an internal level and on an external level so kind of the societal level of I guess what women are expected to like or not and I don't, I don't know if this is necessarily a a deliberate choice, uh, but I certainly read it as as someone as a woman who's always enjoyed horror and for the majority of my life kind of hid it from other people because it always felt like a like a dirty secret. And there's there's that protection that you're talking about that becomes invaded at a certain point, and it's unpredictable when it will become invaded. And there's a particular moment where Enid's protection kind of falls apart around her and it's out of nowhere. And that's when what you're talking about, kind of her disassociation or or the repressed memories, the repressed trauma that she has kind of starts to surface and take control or, or at least take control or start to break away at these very tightly crafted levels of protection that she has around her and it is also watching a horror film it's um i think one of the the third scene in the film where we're when we're shown her watching a horror film that she's you know taking notes on doing her job and it's again the way that that we connect with films Mm -hmm. and we do it on such a a sort of primal emotional level where we we don't really even understand what's happening, but you're feeling something. Mm. <laughs> and sort of what happens when you walk away from the film is that you have to unpack that emotion mm. and go, well, wait, what What part of my brain has that awakened or reawakened? And I, I think, yeah, watching her watch that film for the first time, it's it's like it's sometimes there's things about yourself that you can't really put into words and you you can't really process properly mm. and to have an outside force come along and visualize it for you in such a succinct way like that's like a piece of the puzzle clicking 
and you know here in censor it's in such a negative way <laughs> but i think for many people they they have that experience but it's positive and there's an interesting element there that you bring up it's like that separation between the reality uh, and the psychology of enid and how she needs to address that with the the myth of a horror film because what she's seeing on screen is not actually reality but in in specifically after that breaking point she really tries to essentially try to go into the film or find out whether it's real or not there's that distortion of is it real is it in her head is it actually a bit of both and what do you think the film does with that with those blurred lines between what's the making of a film and especially a horror film, which is, you know, quite, as with any film production, usually quite, frankly, boring and very <laughs> hectic and organization is the key thing. And there's a lot of people working on a set and everybody just has to deliver everything as as, as well as they possibly can. But then there's this myth attached to it of like this, especially in the film, you know, with Frederick North having this almost satanic presence of, you know, he's creating images that are evil in some way that will harm people, which is what Enid is going into it with. But then she ends up on on the set of one of these horror films. And those, what do you make of those blurred lines between the film and the making of a film that she starts to tiptoe around. I think for me that like that's sort of the the power of art. I guess it's almost like a death of the author theory that once a film is is released out of the creator's hands, you know, it belongs to the public and you know they will do with it what they like. <laughs> and um and I think yeah that that myth gets especially interesting and complicated when it comes to horror because if the film is effective and if it creates a sense of fear in the audience they sort of start to treat the film itself as like a cursed object because you know the the magical thing about filmmaking is that as you said the whole process of it is quite banal and ordinary and it's just costumes and props and sets and actors <laughs> combined together with editing and sound um you know but you when you're watching when you're watching something like the exorcist on screen you're not you're not really thinking about that because you you're absorbed in it and it feels real and it feels almost like a magical artifact in its own way and i i think that's how like culturally we have all these myths surrounding films like cursed films cursed sets ghosts on the set people dying and you know it's all it's sort of nonsense but it's all part of like the the myth making of the film and so i think that to me is the really interesting contrast because as a censor she's only ever seeing the final product you know she's not on the sets and and i think for her she is having that difficulty between seeing the dividing line between film as like a, a product of craft I guess and and film as this sort of mythical artifact and I think sort of slightly leading off that I think the really interesting thing about censor is is the sort of the dual narrative that springs out of that where 
it's all about how our brains have this difficulty between dividing reality uh, and fiction and how if there's a gap either in your memory or if there's something that you can't explain and don't have a grasp on like our brains are very good at filling the gap but not always with the truth and so you have in the video nasty moral panic people are seeing you know crimes in the newspapers horrific crimes and they they don't understand because they don't understand the psychology of the person who did it so they're looking for an answer and so it's it's filled in with this magical artifact which is the horror film uh and and then you have Enid as a character who has this gap in her memory something with her sister she knows something bad happened but she doesn't know what it is and so again she takes the magical artifact and she she fills in that gap in her memory and it's i think it's it's fascinating to be able to see how actually similar those mm. two things are how do you think then that Enid's repressed memories are represented visually in the film. Beautifully. <laughs> I think really beautifully done. And I loved the the referencing or at least the use of the color palette from from sort of the the Italian uh Gallo films like mm-hmm. Suspiria or the Lucio Fulci. And and those beautiful pinks and blues, which I'm always just delighted to see in any kind of horror film because it's a it's a beautiful color palette. <laughs> and it also I I I love the the emotion that it instantly creates because it's something both uh, alien and seductive. Mm-hmm. And I think that that runs so true in Suspiria, and to see it here. Mm. Because she's she's constantly being drawn towards the memory because she wants to find out what she thinks is the truth at the center of it. And so mm-hmm. to have those colors, it's enticing, but also like, uh-oh, don't go, don't go down there. <laughs> Something bad will happen. <laughs> don't go too deep into the woods. And what do you think kind of this, there's so many kind of classic images of horror. And it's interesting that you brought up kind of the relationship between women and horror in terms of uh, spectatorship, but also the images that we have of them and one of the the most iconic ones i think there's many is this this image of a woman running through the woods or like in the dark you know running away from something and here it's i find it quite subverted because it's enid in a in a white dress and that as the film progresses becomes increasingly dirtier running towards something in the woods so like you say kind of running towards trying to figure out and and fill that gap that exists in her memory i actually spoke to the costume designer of sensor saffron colain who talked about the work that went into finding the exact right nightdress for enid i was gonna actually ask about the the nightdress if you could talk a little bit because that feels like the the item that is Enid at her most unhinged, but also at her most vulnerable towards the end. And like you mentioned, it's such an iconic piece of of costuming that is, you know, recurrent throughout all of horror. We put a lot of time into the nightdresses. We put a lot of thought into it in a funny sort of way. You'd think it would be something that was quite easy, but it was quite, it took me a while to actually figure out exactly what it needed to be without being comedy like you know like I've just said really I didn't want it to be 
I mean, that dress is going to look ridiculous and running, running around in the woods in a nightdress. You know, so what nightdress is Enid going to wear? Okay, so Enid needs to wear something that is her being in a nightdress in the woods is, you know, deeply ridiculous from her from her point of view anyway. So she's always going to feel, you know, very, in the beginning, going to feel very vulnerable from that being um, exposed like that. So it felt that we needed to do a, a sort of halfway house for her, really. So she had, um, we just kind of made her a bit more contained than Alice Lee, uh, Sophia's character. So Alice Lee's, you know, sort of, fly away and kind of um it felt a bit more sort of frivolous really whereas Enid's character we'd layered the top up a little bit and and contained her you know under the bus and there are kind of layers in the skirt and things like that so yeah it took a bit of thinking about definitely it it was much um it was trying to get the right thing took a little bit of time How do you think it sort of uses the the woods, the darkness, and these quite classic images of horror films to its advantage? Well, I guess here it's hard because I have to get a little bit spoilery. <laughs> Let, let's explain. get a little bit spoilery, yes. <laughs> to explain my thoughts on this. But yeah, as you said, it's such a classic imagery where we're so used to seeing the woman as the victim, you know, running away, falling over, crawling away, begging for mercy. And to have Enid more in the role of the aggressor, that brings up a very interesting question of who is the monster and censor? And I love that it's an open question. And I know that we have very different conclusions on it. (laughs) Um, But to me, I think there is an element of Enid as, as the female monster that uh what she may be repressing is a violence that is within herself and we do see that violence coming out over the course of the film and i think to see her at the very end as you said the the pure virginal white dress dirtied Mm -hmm. (laughs) and bloodied weapon in her hand i i think it's you could very well interpret that as an image of a woman coming into her own, but that own <laughs> happens to be uh, something very dark. Mm. And yeah, as I said, very. I think it's very open. I think that's the pleasure of censor is trying to read it in different ways where she's, she's both the monster and the victim. And I think mm. it's very much up to you to decide what role she is fulfilling by the end. Is there a particular scene that you found terrifying in the film? Oh, that's interesting because I think my experience watching it, it was it was less cause sort of like an abject horror, but more like, a, I think I mentioned this before, like a, mm. a discomfort. Mm-hmm. And, and I think to me, that's as valid a way and, and as as good a way to react to a horror film. I don't I don't always want to go into them to be like, ooh, scared, I have to sleep with the lights on now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this for me it wasn't so much the the individual scares, but mm-hmm. this horrible building sense of tension throughout mm-hmm. the movie. 
that does not release by the end. Mm -hmm. And so that's why afterwards I was still like, ooh, I feel very un uncomfortable. <laughs> and I, I don't know how to shake this because the movie doesn't give you that release. And that's, that's this is good. I'm saying this is good stuff because I, I like to feel like that. I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but I enjoy that feeling. That's why we're all here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that even the the sparse violence in the film doesn't actually give you that sense of release, but rather grows the tension. And I'm wondering, kind of, what did you think about the use of violence specifically because it becomes kind of heightened because of the films that it's referencing and because of the films that it's drawing from and the era in which it's set. So it kind of becomes a video nasty in and of itself. But the violence feels very, feels a lot more, what's the word I'm looking for? The violence feels a lot nastier in a way. I think the reason it feels like that for me is is what I noticed that I think is incredibly clever, is that when she's watching the actual video nasties, mm. the, it cuts away, often cuts away before the, the actual really nasty violent part. I mean, you see some violence, but mm. it's not, it's much more muted as opposed to when that horror bleeds into her real life. I, I remember the first time that you see gore and you see violence sort of in her life. Hmm. It felt so, I was kind of shocked. <laughs> it was so stark because I wasn't expecting to see it in that context. I was obviously going into censor expecting to see blood and gore because it's mm. a movie about video nasties. <laughs> but I think I was really surprised that it, it that the movie holds back so much at the beginning mm -hmm. and then when you see it it just yeah it comes as a flood i think and i think that's why it's so effective that you 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 sort of spend the whole film waiting for it and the way that it comes out through enid is yeah it, it's horrifying be because it's it's reality it's mm -hmm. this is meant to be the real thing um this isn't meant to be the the, the fiction, the fantasy. Mm. So it feels so much more stark for that. And I know this is the this is the thing that you really want to talk about. And the mystery at the center of Censor is what happened to Enid's sister, Nina, who disappeared when she was a child and her disappearance was never resolved. And before we go into a spoilerific discussion about our thoughts on the ending of Censor. I spoke to lead actress Neve Alger about some of her motivation for the character of Enid and some of the things that she's dealing with throughout the film. If you had gone through such a traumatic thing as a child where your sister goes, your sister's disappeared. Mm -hmm. There would have been so much media attention on that as a child that she would have been probably overexposed and traumatized by so carrying this PTSD of everyone knowing everything about you, but yet you can't remember mm. the one event that would save your sister um, would have this ongoing, I suppose, stain on you as, as a human that that you can't you, you feel like people are just seeing that and they're not seeing you. They're just seeing the the terrible thing that happened to you. And can you talk a little bit of what changed for you in 
and how you wanted to play her once Enid starts to lose her grip on reality and things start to sort of mix and blend together. It's interesting. Where, where is Enid begins to lose it, she mm-hmm. actually becomes more human. <laughs> she <laughs> begins to, even though she's losing grip on reality, you see a person actually loosen up mm-hmm. and nearly you begin to warm to her more, even though essentially what she's like, I feel like, which that that's so such an interesting path to go on as a character is that when they start to do things that they shouldn't do, we understand them more. And this is an open question. Like we've been talking, Sensor doesn't really try to spoon feed you any answers. It opens doors and it asks you to look through into them and the doors are, there's only darkness there. So you can't quite clearly see what's happening, which I think is a brilliant, brilliant way to, to present a horror film that is, that is truly unsettling. So I wanted to ask you, what do you, what do you think happened to Enid's sister? 100% (laughs) I'm sorry to say this but Enid killed her I was so sure of it the second that she started watching the film um, Don't Go Into the Church I was like oh she's reacting this way because she's reliving the memory and that's why she becomes more and more of a violent person over the course of the film Because what she's been repressing is not just the memory of killing her sister. It's an entire side of her personality that is a violent person. And I'm sure there's a lot of trauma that led to that. That could be a whole other film. But I don't know. I I was the second that film (laughs) played, my mind went, well, that's it. That explains everything. Because I think the idea that she would simply be repressing a memory of witnessing a crime... I don't quite buy it. What I do buy is her trying to repress, like, her guilt. She she feels so guilty about it that she just refuses. It's not so much a... So it's not even so much a repressed memory. I think it's her brain in this self-protection mode refusing to let her remember that act and that entire side of her. And then I think that's why there's a scene where they're talking about another murder that happened where the man did not remember committing the crime. And that's why she's so fascinated by it, because I think she knows on a base level what she did. And I love female monsters, and I love complicated women. (laughs) So maybe that's just my brain wanting it to be that way, because I I just find that both interpretations are really interesting, but I I think that one for me is the most interesting. I love that interpretation and I actually, I, I'm i enjoying, the more people I speak about the film with, I'm enjoying asking that question because I think one of the most successful elements of Censor is allowing for so many different interpretations and answers to that question and all of them kind of fitting in. Um, so in my conversation with the lead actress, Neve Algar, I asked her the same question and she had a completely different take on it. There's something really poignant that you said about leaving stuff open for interpretation in the film. Yeah, I think what's interesting is what the audience take from it. That's my mm-hmm. my interpretation of it. But I think everyone, what I found is that, you know, people watch it and they take 
they take from it what what they want and mm-hmm. people read into things differently and that's what I so I love about it it's not trying to hammer an answer mm. over people's heads and that's what why cinema is so great is that it's it's interpretative art it does feel to me like the film equivalent of the the black and blue white gold dress because like I am so convinced that that is what happened it's not me going well this is my interpretation while I was watching the film I was like this is it this is going to be the ending of the movie they will reveal this I'm so certain of it and so that's it was so interesting to me when it when it left it open I was like but it's so obvious and then (laughs) now speaking to other people realizing that other people are also very certain of their own interpretation (laughs) of it I mean that is that is brilliant filmmaking because it's not just it's not just leaving it open Lots of filmmakers can do that, but to essentially film two films in one (laughs) so that you could equally come away with just being so certain about what happened. (laughs) I mean, that's that's good. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been produced by the final goals with the support of Vertigo Releasing. It's been edited by Olivia Graham with music by Emily Levianez Farouche, used with permission. Censor is out in UK cinemas on the 20th of August, so seek it out. <laughs>